We're in Colossians chapter 4. Uh, we'll pick up once again in verse 2. And this time, though, we'll read through verse 6. This is the reading of God's Word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The word of the Lord. Well, saints, uh, we come back to this hard topic. Evangelism. We talked about it last week, and we really get to pick up in this uh, flow of thought because that's what Paul is doing here. Last week, if you weren't here, or even if you were, just to recap, I mean, we really just started with a concession that so many of us feel like we're bad at this. Uh, like I prayed, we feel like we're, we're weak at it, or sometimes we feel like we're just sinfully not engaged in it. We know that the Lord wants the good news of the gospel to go out, to spread. We know we have a part in that. And yet, we just struggle. And so last week, what we were considering was the faith behind an evangelist. We're hearing the faith of the Apostle Paul, you know, just your, your evangelist, if ever there was one. And we were seeing the ways that he was dependent. He was dependent on prayer. He was dependent on God and on God's word. There was no illusion that he was just going out there and doing it by himself. No matter how smart he was, no matter how uh, courageous he was, that was not actually what he depended on. He depended on God. And he knew, he knew that he had a role to play. And the apostle did have a special role, don't get me wrong. We're not apostles. But the apostle had this burden of knowing, I have a role to play in the word going out. And we saw that we likewise, we had a role like that. Not an apostle, but we had the role of taking good news out into the darkness, into a dying world that needs to hear these good things that we know and believe. And so last week, you could really summarize it in terms of this. We were asking and trying to answer the question of why someone would evangelize, why they would spread the good news of the gospel. And now this week, we're going to see how Paul is going to then point our attention to very practical matters of how this is going to look and especially then in the lives of Christians. What Paul is going to show us today is that evangelism is meant to be an ordinary part of life. That word's important today, ordinary. One of the big problems we bring to our evangelism is that we're viewing it wrong, even from the, just the very beginning, because we're not viewing evangelism as if it's ordinary. We are actually viewing evangelism as if, it, as if it's extraordinary. It's rare. It's uncommon. And so it's an extraordinary event. 
So it may well be, uh, I'm telling you, hey, I'm about to go see these people. I, I just, I love them, I care for them, and, and I'm really looking forward to this chance to, to, to share the gospel with them. And, and that's good. Please, believe me, that's good. But there's a way in which that is like an extraordinary event. I need prayer for my evangelism on this one day, and it's not really what's going on in the rest of my life. We can view evangelism as if it's just a special event. It just happens once in a while. It's not ordinary at all. We can view evangelism as if it's only done by extraordinary people. So, in that case, you've got the people who say, ah, I just feel driven to, to just take the gospel out, to talk about it with my friends, my loved ones, my colleagues, and then everyone else looks at the person and says, wow, that... That is that special kind of person who evangelizes. And so then we say that's a special person. The rest of us aren't. That's the person who does evangelism. The rest of us don't really, except on those extraordinary times of the year of our lives. One of our big problems, one of the things undermining our evangelism is that we have accepted all these ways of viewing evangelism like it's an extraordinary thing instead of as being an ordinary part of life. What we're going to talk about today is ordinary evangelism. Ordinary. Ordinary evangelism. And so Paul is now going to move on from that question of why someone might evangelize. We talked about that last week. Now we're going to be talking about things like, okay, who does this? What do they do? How do they do it? Very practical questions. We'll pray that the Lord blesses us very practically with an understanding of ordinary evangelism. So ask that first question, who? Who is doing this ordinary evangelism? And you see, just built into these passages today, verses 5 and 6, where we're focusing, that it's ordinary Christians who evangelize. Ordinary Christians who evangelize. Who is Paul talking to in verses 5 and 6? He's just talking to ordinary Christians. He's just talking to ordinary Christians. He's just talking to the people who were at church that day. He's not just saying, this is what apostles do. Pray for us apostles as we do this extraordinary thing. No, he is just talking to ordinary Christians. Christians who believe the saving basics of Christianity. I think sometimes we do ourselves and we do the gospel just a great injustice. Because we think the basics are not much to be impressed with. And like if you're going to be an evangelist, ah, the basics just aren't going to cut it. But it's the basics that save. It's the basics that transfer us out of darkness into his glorious light. And so when we're talking basics, we're just saying things like we've talked about in this letter so far. Who is Jesus? Son of God, that long-promised Messiah. What did he do? He lived a perfect life. Died on the cross to save sinners, but better than that, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he's coming again. If you just have that, 
The Jesus who lived, died, rose again. The Jesus who was coming back to judge both the living and the dead. You have got some profound truth under your belt. These are the kinds of basics that the world needs. And so Paul is just talking to ordinary Christians who believe the ordinary gospel, the ordinary things that we teach from the earliest days of someone coming to faith in Christ or someone we're trying to bring to faith in Christ. And what Paul assumes as he's talking to these ordinary Christians, Paul assumes that evangelism is actually lived out in everyday life. Yes, there's special events. Yes, there's family get-togethers. Okay, yes. And yet Paul is saying that evangelism is going to be lived out in everyday life. No one is being singled out in these verses as being the special person. No one is being ruled out as the unqualified person. Paul is not saying only qualified evangelists need apply. Remember when I was looking for jobs before I was a pastor, and there's all those jobs that say, you know, five to ten years experience, and you're looking at your resume just wondering, can I make this say I have five to ten years of experience, right? Paul is not doing that with evangelism, saying, hey, get your act together, at least get a degree in Bible, and then maybe, maybe you can go evangelize. No, Paul is talking about ordinary Christians living out their ordinary lives, which means every single Christian is included in this teaching about evangelism. Which means every single one of us, brothers and sisters, is included in this teaching about evangelism. It's ordinary Christians who evangelize. And then Paul's going to be saying, and Paul's going to be uh, assuming, that actually Christians should be out in the world. So now we're moving from the who of evangelism to something of the what. What are Christians doing when they go out evangelizing? Christians should be out in the world. So see in the text where Paul is going to say, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Paul is telling them to consider outsiders. And remember, at this time, Christianity is the tiny minority. This is not some, like, insult from one big majority group saying, ah, all those outsiders out there. There's just some tiny group of Christians, and all Paul means is, keep in mind that there are people who are not Christians. There are people who are not inside the church. They are outside the church. They are outside this faith. We would just call them non-Christians. And Paul is saying, consider them. As one commentator said, just so compellingly, there is never a time when our responsibilities to the outsider can be out of mind. Do you hear that? There is never a time when our responsibilities to the outsider can be out of mind. As we go out into the world, brothers and sisters, we are always aware that there are those outside of Christ. We are always aware that they are outside of the good news that we have, and we're meant to be thinking about them. We're meant to be considerate of those people, and in that, we're also actually expected to be engaging 
with those outside of the faith. Christians are meant to be engaging with non-Christians. On the theoretical level, you say, well, of course. On the practical level, that actually can be harder than it sounds. It is so easy for us to get just stuck in a bubble because we gravitate towards people with the same activities. We gravitate to people with the same values. We gravitate towards people who are in the same demographics. It just happens naturally. It's not even anything bad in that. But we have to be aware that it happens, that we start clumping together all these people with the same kind of views, the same kind of backgrounds. And next thing you know, it's all a bunch of people who think and believe and do all the same things. And there's no one else. And there's no bridge outside. That's a bubble. That's a bubble. And we have to be so aware of that fighting against being stuck in that bubble. What Paul is calling us to is he's calling us to a difficult balance. A difficult balance. Yes, we need to guard against this world's values. Yes, we need to guard against the way this world is exerting its influence on us. And so, yes, we affirm that, we amen that. That's just a matter of wisdom. This world is absolutely trying to lead us away from the things of God. We have to be aware of that. And yet, we also engage with the world. This is the balance. Yes, we're on guard, and yes, we engage. So what's being assumed here is there's going to be people in your lives you are actually engaging with that are not Christians. And so that might be your friends, it might be your neighbors, it might be your colleagues, whoever it is, right? There's these people in our lives, and the apostle is expecting that we're actually having conversations with them. The apostle is expecting that we have activities in common with them. You just can't get away from this logic that no one is going to hear the gospel unless we are engaged with the world. No one's going to hear the gospel unless we are actually engaged in the world. And so Paul is telling them, consider the outsiders, walk in wisdom towards them. And then in that situation, Paul is expecting that when Christians are living like Christians— Non-Christians will have questions. That's what he's implying in verse 6 when he talks about that you're going to need to be able to answer each person. That word answer implies a question. Where's that question going to come from? Well, you're going to have a Christian out there living in some Christian way and it is going to be different than the world. And then the world, in various times, various places, they're going to look at the Christian and say, why are you doing that? What is this you are doing? And sometimes that might just be curiosity. 
Sometimes it might come with a bit of a hostile edge. But Christians living as non-Christians, they're going to elicit questions from the world. And what that's going to lead to is it's going to mean that we have this constant opportunity to evangelize responsively. To evangelize responsively. So I think sometimes we get all caught up in saying, look at Paul, look what he did, I could never do that. I couldn't just go traveling around from place to place, preaching, debating, setting up churches. There's so many reasons I couldn't do that, therefore I'm not going to go evangelize, I can't evangelize. I think what you see in Paul is you see a real way that the Lord used him to initiate. He was very good at it. Just showing up in marketplaces, starting conversations, going down to the synagogues, going to go speak with his fellow Jews. He's just going places and he's starting things. And I imagine some of you are also good at things like that. But there's another rich side of evangelism that's possible for us, and it's just to respond. It's to live as Christians and then respond when the world is wondering, why are you doing that? There's so much opportunity for this, for the world to look at us and say, why do you live like you do? Why do you spend your money like you do? Why do you go about your relationships like you do? Why do you work like you do? Why do you play like you do? There's really no limit to this. And I want you to even know today that here you are on the Lord's Day at church, and that is a gospel proclamation to the world. Simple church attendance is actually a big part of our witness. When a group of people says, we are going to structure all of our time, week by week, month by month, year by year, when we are going to structure all of that around gathering and worshiping, that is a witness. That is Christians being very different from the world. Because people can look at us and they say, I mean, I don't understand. Why don't you just sleep more on Sundays? And on days like that, we understand Days like today, we think, I could have used a couple more hours of sleep. The world could look at us and say, why don't you use that time to, to go enjoy some recreation? Go up to the mountains, go to the lake, go do whatever. Why don't you use it for that? Or, why don't you use your time to work more? Imagine how many more sales, how many more deals, how much more productive you could be if you just worked instead of going to church. All of these are things that the world does naturally, and us, by our just very simple structuring of our weeks to say, we come together on the Lord's Day, all of this makes for a wonderful, constant, kind of dramatic testimony to this world. Why don't we do the things you do? Because the risen Lord calls us together to gather, to worship, to fellowship. That's why. 
We have built into our lives a witness to this world. Live like a Christian in a non-Christian world, and it does actually draw attention. It kind of has to. It should. Which brings us to that question. Do we actually stand out as Christians? Do you? Is that known? Is your life just of a different character? The way you conduct yourself? Just different. You're marching to the beat of a different drum. Are we actually different than the world? Sometimes we actually set a high priority on not standing out. I can be guilty of this. I get along with a lot of different kinds of people. It's, it's, it's how I'm wired. I like lots of different kinds of people. I can be in lots of different conversations. But what I've realized about myself is I can be invisible socially. I can talk in a lot of different ways and not make any ripples. And the fear of man side of me would do this all the time. No one's going to think I'm the weird person. No one's going to think I made the conversation uncomfortable. Oh, they're just going to think I'm just one of the guys. When it comes to evangelism, that's not a good thing. And when it comes to our witness, no one thinking we're Christian is not a good thing. There's discretion to this. There's wisdom to this. I'm not saying you have to, like, you know, construct a, a, a cross that you carry into your workplace and you just leave it, you know, uh, parked in your parking space or something like that so everyone's just real clear who you are. You know, there's just like ways that I don't mean. But at the same time, a Christian living as a Christian stands out. We want to stand out. We want to be that, that hint of heavenly things. We want to be that, 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 that person that's just not doing what everyone else is doing. We want people to think, that's just kind of odd. I should ask them about that. Which then gives you that opportunity to evangelize responsively. It's actually way easier to share the things of the Lord when they've started the conversation, isn't it? Sometimes we're just dreaming of that. Paul is put, painting a situation for us of us being out in the world, engaged with people, living so differently that people will regularly look at us and have questions. And then we can evangelize responsively. We want to be different than the world, saints. We want to be. As we're out there in the world then, Paul tells us to, to consider each person. That's actually the language he uses there again at the end of verse 6, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And don't read over that too fast, because you might read over that and think, ah, oh, Paul's just saying, ah, you should, be willing, you should be able to talk to anyone. And the anyone's just kind of generic. Paul's being specific here, so that we may know how we ought to answer each one. Paul is talking about individuals, and our lives are filled with individuals. 
We're supposed to go out there and consider the specific people in our lives. We're not going around with a generic set of descriptions of a, of a non-Christian. Oh, okay, because you're a non-Christian, you believe this, 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 and this, and you think this, 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 and this. We're going to get things wrong a lot if we're treating people generically. I always hate when people treat me generically. Oh, so you believe this, huh? It's like, you know, when the world talks about Christians, oh, okay, so you guys think that. No, no, we don't. I don't like that being done to me. I bet you don't either, right? We don't want to do that to people out in the world. We consider them as individuals, and when you think about it, this just makes sense. People have so many different backgrounds. They have so many different contexts in which they are living. So when we're thinking about the gospel going out into the world, big question that's going to change how you approach someone, do they have any familiarity with Christianity at all? Sometimes we just assume people, oh, you've got some basics, right? Like, maybe not. Maybe, we've got a lot of this, maybe they're just like a nature worshiper mystic type. They've never been to church. They never had Sunday school. They were never catechized. It's just a big kind of like generic blank spot in their awareness of religious things. They may have no familiarity with Christianity at all. All they know is, oh, my God is in the mountains or something. That's a very specific person. You're going to speak to them in specific ways. But here, ask another question. How about this? You're going out there, you have this chance to share the things of, of, of the word. Does that person you're, you're going to talk to have any bad experiences with Christianity? Now here we have a whole another group, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of people out there whose understanding of Christianity, understanding of Jesus Christ, is completely going to go through a lens of, I had this experience and it was bad with Christians. So there's this whole group. They, they call themselves ex-evangelicals, as in ex-evangelicals, people who were once evangelical Christians who would have been raised in very similar beliefs as, as we're talking about here, and that went bad for some reason, and they have explicitly rejected that and left that. So in that case, if you're talking to that person, you're not talking to a blank slate. You're talking to someone who has very specific and probably actually hurt and hostile views related to Jesus Christ. That's a very different person that you're going to approach in very different ways. You could ask yourself another question related to the, to the previous one. You're sharing the gospel with someone and you're just wondering, are there any misunderstandings that they are under when it comes to Christianity? So, you're a Christian, huh? Why do you guys hate the LGBT community? That's like a natural way of looking at Christians for a lot of people. Oh, you must hate these people. Your goal is to squash their identity. You have the privilege of being in that conversation. Again, you're talking to a very specific person with specific background, specific context, and you're going to speak to them 
differently. When Paul tells us that we are going to need to have an answer for each person, he is reminding us that we need to engage with people for who they actually are as individuals. This is all part of Paul assuming that we are out there in the world engaged with it. And so we've had the who, we've had the what of evangelism, and now we're really primed to ask the how. So how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to do this? Paul will say that Christians need to be wise, and Christians need to be winsome. Wise and winsome. We need so much wisdom. So much wisdom to face this world. When Paul's saying walk in wisdom towards outsiders, that is a huge understatement, right? We need so much wisdom for navigating, for engaging this culture in which we live. I only said a few of the various kinds of people and the various kinds of issues that are out there. We just know there's just, there, there's just so many types of people There are so many issues. There are so many worldviews. We need wisdom for navigating all that, for engaging with all those types of people. We haven't even said things like, okay, what about sharing the gospel with an adult versus, say, sharing the gospel with a child? Another big set of differences. There's going to be things like culture differences. How do things change? when we're trying to share the gospel with different cultures. How do we engage with all these people's questions? How do we engage with all these people's issues? Wisdom. Wisdom, right? You wish I had the script for you. Here's your 10 points and you will be able to handle any conversation. Nope. Paul says walk in wisdom. And wisdom actually defies scripts. You know, the the set of steps that's just going to handle everything? Wisdom's bigger than that. Wisdom's deeper than that. Wisdom is the kind of thing that comes to you in that moment when you're thinking, I've never heard anything like this. What am I going to do? We need wisdom in those moments. Where are we going to get it? Where do we get the wisdom we need for all those people out there in the world? It's going to be God's Word. Stay true to your convictions, saints. It's going to be God's Word. Don't substitute in your opinions. Remember what Paul depended on? He wanted there to be an open door for the Word to go forward because it's by the Word that people are saved. Make that our conviction. Put yourself under the microscope because it's so easy for us to just substitute in our opinions. Ah, that's an interesting question. Here's what I think. That might not be helpful. That might not be God's word at all. Right? We want to be a people who's depending on God's word, not our opinions, not the world's, not your favorite podcast, not your favorite personality. The word. Some people are going to be more helpful than others in pointing us to the Word, not anti-podcast or something. But we need the Word, not just our heart, not just our gut reaction, not someone else's. 
We need the word. When Paul says to walk in wisdom, remember that picture of a walk? It's the picture of our daily life. It's the picture of our daily practice. Paul is saying your daily practice should be according to wisdom. Your daily life should be just soaked in wisdom. So what does that mean? Okay, the wisdom's in God's word. I need that wisdom badly. What's that mean practically? That means dive deep into God's word. The reason we're so big on reading your Bible is not because we want you, like Thomas was saying, we're not saying this so you can check your boxes and keep your certification or something. We're saying you should be in the Word because that's how the Lord's going to shape you and transform you and feed you. You need to be living there because that's how God wants to bless you. Where are you going to get this wisdom? It's going to come from meditating on the Word. That, that, that slow lifestyle in the Word, turning it over in your mind, pressing it deep into your emotions is what we were saying this morning. You have to be meditating on the Word if that wisdom's going to be anywhere in your heart ready to help you when you're facing this world. The, the Apostle is picturing a people who are living in the Word and wisdom of God. It's what we're going to need. That's what it's going to take. We need wisdom if we are going to face this world. And it's going to be wisdom that says that we need to make the best use of the time we have. That's what he says there, right? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Time is rushing by. We know this, right? Time is rushing by. It's rushing by in our own lives. Chapters are ending, new chapters beginning passing certain milestones, certain things are now well in the rearview mirror. Time is rushing by, and you, individual you, you have no idea actually when it's going to end. Time is rushing by on the big picture scene too, not just for us as individuals, but for this entire world, because we are now expecting one great event, and that is the return of Jesus Christ. And then this chapter, which is this chapter of opportunity, this time to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that chapter will end, and it will end suddenly. It will end unexpectedly. The Lord, he did something very purposefully. He wanted us to live believing that his return was always impending. It could always be just right around the corner. And it will come like a thief in the night. He did not want us saying, no, 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 I've got, I've got like six months until the return. He didn't want us to think there was a date that that's when it was happening. He wanted us to not know so that we would live a certain way. And that only drives home that sense that time is rushing by. Can you picture an hourglass? with the sands slipping down from the top to the bottom. Life is like an hourglass, but you can't see the top. You have no idea how much sand is actually in the top. 
All you can see is the part where it's falling down. We have no idea how much time we have. We never know. And so as one theologian said, surely that night comes of which you will never see the morning. Or that morning of which you will never see the night. But which of your mornings or nights will be such you know not? We cannot presume that we get more time. We cannot presume that of course there's tomorrow. Of course there's six months from now. Of course there's time to do the thing that we should have done today. We cannot presume there is more time because we just never know. And so wisdom takes that truth into our hearts and says, I am going to make the best use of the time that I have. And in context, what's Paul talking about? The spread of the gospel. Again, we're not talking about your worldly bucket list. Oh, I'm running out of time. I better go to Greece. No, you're running out of time. So share the gospel. Share the gospel. When you see that opportunity, grab it. Grab it because you don't know if you will ever have another. Grab it because today is all you get. Make the best use of the time. Wisdom lives in light of time rushing by and we never know when it's going to be done. Make the best use of the time. And as we do, Christians then are called to a winsome testimony. Winsome. It's a great word. My wife taught it to me. It's just this idea of what Paul is saying here. That we're going to go out and let our speech always be gracious. Our speech should always be gracious. Seasoned with salt. What a great picture. So on the one hand, he's talking about that the way you live your life, there's going to be something attractive about it in a godly sense. That's what winsomeness is. There's an attractiveness to the good news that we're proclaiming. There's an attractiveness to how we live our lives and how we proclaim these things to others. And Paul's even going to say that this is the way we should always be. Let your speech always be gracious. So this winsomeness, this attractiveness of the gospel, of our character as gospel people, it's always supposed to be on display in a good way. And the witness that then we bear to the world, it's meant to be compelling. You kind of enjoy the idea that Paul said it should be seasoned with salt. Salt, the universal, you know, condiment, the the flavoring that we can talk about across time, right? Jesus wasn't using ketchup right? But he did know what salt was. Salt, it, it's, it's, it's a wonderful picture. Our testimony should not be flavorless. There's a way in which we can just be broadcasters of information, but when you flip it around, you're like, who would really be compelled by that? You know, it's by that like public radio broadcast burst into your thing and alert you or something. Like, who, who's really into this? Sometimes that's our witness. Sometimes that's our testimony. 
uncompelling, flavorless. Paul is actually calling us to ask, how is it that we are sharing these truths of the gospel? What is the way in which we do it? How is it that we are bringing winsomeness to our testimony? How is it that we are bringing flavor to our testimony? What makes our testimony compelling? What makes the gospel compelling? This is actually a beautiful question. I want you to all think about this this week. Sit down for your own meditation and just say, what do I find just deeply compelling about the gospel? And maybe you think about it this way. How would I share what's compelling with the gospel with this guy over here versus this gal over there? How would that change how I present that? How would they be interested in this side of the compelling parts of the gospel versus that side? Ask yourself, what makes the gospel compelling? And that is actually supposed to be a part of our witness. And so we go out into this world with all its varied kinds of people, and we try and bring a compelling witness to them. So you get a chance to talk to the nature worshiper who says, once a year, I go and worship in the Black Rock Desert. Okay, so you love nature, huh? Well, how about this? Did you know that nature actually is just the fingerprints of this glorious God I could tell you about? That's a little better than idolater. You're wrong. You might have to go there. But there, we, we aim for a compelling witness to the LGBTQ community. community to those people who are concerned that our goal is just to squash their hearts, to squash their identity that is so precious to them. I mean, what I would long to be able to say to them, what I'd hope the church would be saying to them, is that you are restlessly searching for an identity, but you're not going to find it in any of these places you're trying. You are only going to find it in the one who created you. You are only going to find it in Jesus Christ. Would you let me tell you about that? We consider also the ex-evangelical, the person who's been hurt, the person who's seen the hypocrisy, the person who maybe has been abused. Unfortunately, that's just far too common. How would we share the gospel with them? We could tell them that Jesus understands the failures and oppressions of men. He knows what it is to be betrayed by his loved ones. He knows what it is to suffer for who he was, to suffer for what he believed. He knew what it was to be beaten and mocked. Jesus understands. But more than that, Jesus can heal all the damage that these people have done to you. Would you let me tell you about this Jesus? We are called to compellingly point people to Jesus Christ. A glorious task, but one that at the same time makes you say, oh God, help me. Help me. Friends, the Lord calls Christians to make evangelism a part of ordinary life. We know Christ because Christ sought us and Christ saved us.
And that heart that our Savior has, that heart that he showed us, that's the heart that he wants us to reflect to this world. The Lord himself wants us to reflect his evangelistic heart. In other words, Jesus saved us so that we could save others. And you say, whoa, whoa, God saves. Yes, he does. God is sovereign over salvation. Yes, he is the one who is responsible for salvation. He gets all the glory. And even so, the scriptures can talk about Christians saving people. You'll see Paul, you'll see James talking about Christians saving sinners. James 5.20, Romans 11, verse 14, if you'd like to look it up later. Salvation, friends. Salvation is our mission. Today. Today and every day. The one who seeks and saves the lost calls us to go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for good news. We thank you for the good news that sinners can be saved. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to take up our mission, to take up our commission. Lord, send us into this world. Help us to engage our neighbor, our loved ones. Help us to answer well in the moment. Father, please prepare us for the moment. We pray that we would be a people of your word and of your wisdom. Make us ready, Lord. Use us. We long to see your salvation spread. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.